to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to read from verse 17 through the end of chapter 1, and our focus, though, will be those first few verses of 17, 18, and 19. So, beloved, before, we, uh, before I read from this text, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon the reading and preaching of this word. Now, gracious Father, we do bow before you in the blessed and sweet name of Christ, our mediator, who is our prophet, priest, and king. We come, O Lord, seeking your blessing of enlightenment, understanding. Lord, that you would not only correct us, Lord, where we are ignorant, but that you would even, Lord, encourage the truth that remains in our hearts and our minds. That you would, Lord, solidify and make even stronger those convictions that are right. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would correct us, Lord, in our practice. Lord, if there's anything that we learn in the preaching of your word this morning, uh, Lord, that is contrary to the, this doctrine of the preaching of the gospel, Lord, that we would amend our ways. So, Lord, come and, Lord, give us all the graces needed to receive and to rest in this gospel truth this morning, in this, this doctrine that Paul lays before us in his word, Lord. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, beloved, I want to begin reading at verse 17. For Christ, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. But for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to, to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh and not many mighty and not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God 
and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Beloved, you may be seated. Uh, Beloved, I am convinced that if you were to uh, run into the apostle Paul in that time period that he lived, in the grocery store or waiting to get your oil changed or just in any, uh, you know, community endeavor or activity and you were to strike up a conversation about life in general, that usually happens in those situations. One of the first things Paul would have told you about himself is that he is a preacher of the gospel. Paul delighted in being called in Christ to preach the gospel of Christ. The cross, he says in the text. This is a very powerful text of scripture that helps us set in place the importance of what ministry is to be about. It's easy for us as people, as those with various delights and enjoyments, those that, you know, even the way we understand things, we, we all have a tendency of placing an emphasis on portions or certain aspects of, of, of doctrine, of, of church and of life that we deem important. And, and we all have those ideas and opinions, but it's often, it's, it's so important for us to always come up under the dominion of the word of God, under the, the, the power of the word of God, if you will, and, and be subjected to its teaching and instruction and, and to constantly have our thoughts challenged, to constantly have our minds filled with truth, to have our hearts bent to the will of God so that we are all on the same page. So that there is unity among us, that we are not walking in, in any, every other direction, but that we are walking as the people of God, just as a, a body walks in the same direction under, under the authority and guidance of the head, who is Christ. And Paul uses that analogy, doesn't he? If you're reading Corinthians as we study the book, you'll see Paul uses that analogy. Christ is the head. Does the hand war against the the head? No. Does the leg war against the head? No. It all forms a union and it's all in compliance with with the head, the will of the head, and then it all goes in one direction. But what helps us achieve that? What grace has Christ bestowed upon us as believers to aid us in conforming to his will and conforming to that ministry and maturing and growing up, well, in the kingdom of God or in Christ or in that love that Paul talked about in Ephesians 4. Well, there are several of those graces Worship is a grace. Prayer is a grace. We are participating in worship now. We have participated in prayer. 
Baptism is a grace. We talked about that last Lord's Day. The Lord's Supper is a grace. In baptism, we are reminded that it's a divine work that brings us into true unity with Christ. That it is in that spiritual work that, that those benefits that Christ has given to the church, that Christ has bestowed upon the church, do come to us in a very powerful way. We call it effectual. That is, they have a work, they perform a work, and they accomplish that work. That's what it talks about being these efficacious doctrines and these means of grace. They are by the work and empowered by the Spirit to accomplish what Christ has intended for them to accomplish in you. The Lord's Supper is a reminder of his sacrifice, his giving up of his body. And when we remember that, when we exercise our minds in remembrance of that, the Spirit uses that to conform us to the Word of God preached before the taking of the sacrament, to the, the will of God and to the mercies of God so that we by and by, more and more along the way, we are shaped and molded into that blessed image of Jesus. And this morning, we're now going to address what Paul begins to explain and highlight for us, and that's the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of Christ or the preaching of the cross, the preaching of the kingdom of God, all of these things, all meaning the same thing. Paul makes a, a very important statement in verse 17, or at least he reveals something that I want to spend a little time on this morning uh, opening up to you so that we don't fall into an unbalanced understanding of these graces. And we talked about the beauty and the usefulness and the glory of baptism last week. But Paul says something very important in verse 17, for he says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. If you read any sound commentary they will certainly point out and bring to your attention that Paul is saying that as important as baptism is, and it's important, preaching is even more important than baptism. Now, you would think, and maybe you're sitting out there this morning thinking, well, I, I, of course. We don't baptize every service, nor do we rebaptize ourselves every service, though there are some inclined to being rebaptized many times to sort of assuage their conscience. And yet, we preach every Lord's Day. 
Now, that practice in and of itself doesn't, well, it doesn't really answer the question or it really doesn't set before us the, the primacy of preaching. But I do want us to point out that we have a tendency we have a tendency to ascribe to ceremonies more power than they necessarily have. And even in our day and time, we have what we might call uh, hyper-sacramentalists, people that, that give to baptism a regenerating efficacy, that if you are baptized, that the act of baptism regenerates one's soul. Now, we would reject that. We don't believe in baptismal regeneration. We don't believe that the very act of baptizing someone saves them. Nor do we think that taking the Lord's Supper automatically or magically rather somehow communicates to you the benefits of Christ. That if somehow I just eat this bread or drink this wine and, or eat the body and drink the, the, the blood of Christ, that somehow I'm going to be okay no matter how I live. And so those are differing views and differing understandings, and that's why many in the Reformed, I should say many, a small segment of Reformed Christians have gone off into what we might call paedo-communion. Because somehow they attribute to the taking of the sacrament more than what we believe the, the gospel or the word of God conveys or reveals or even teaches and they think that by giving that child that sacrament is somehow performing something in that child that, well, the basic teaching of the Word of God doesn't do. Now, brothers and sisters, I think we need to reject, and we should reject, and we have to reject baptismal regeneration. But we just as equally need to reject this idea that the Lord's Supper somehow communicates the benefits of Christ to us no matter what condition we're in. You know, walking out onto the battlefield and performing last rites. And, 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 and somehow, you know, giving the Lord's Supper in some last rite ceremony so that they can what? Go to heaven. We reject those teachings. And I hope this morning to begin opening up this passage of Scripture so that we can put rightly before us, especially in the ministry here and in our hearts and minds, our expectations on really what is sound Christian ministry. So as we talk about the primacy of the gospel or the primacy of the preaching of the gospel, rather, we see it beginning right there in verse 17 where Paul makes that claim, Christ did not send me to baptize. Let's, let's deal with that. First of all, we know that baptism is a sacrament. It's a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. Now, why is preaching greater than a sacrament? Well, it's in the nature of the sacrament that 
we can at least begin to look at. The nature of the sacrament, remember, it's a sign and seal. Signs must be interpreted. Signs must have some meaning ascribed to them. That's why they're called signs. They don't in and of themselves convey anything. They just are there. Well, what is it that gives a sign its meaning and value? It's some revelation. The preaching of the gospel is greater than baptism because it is the preaching of the gospel that is the teaching, it's the doctrine, it's the revelation of what baptism is a sign of. Now, you need to think on that. Let me give you something of an example of it. Um, Turn to Acts chapter 2. Now, we know, and of course, we've been um, raised to see that the day of Pentecost was the baptism of the Holy Spirit upon the church there after Christ has ascended into heaven, in the, witnessed by the apostles and, and, well, many others. And it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit and, and yet, you see, the evidence of this baptism was them speaking in tongues. Now, I'm summarizing the longer text for you, though I'm going to show you where it is. The speaking in tongues was the physical manifestation. It was the physical evidence of that spiritual baptism. Now, what Peter does is Peter goes on to talk about that this was the sign that Jesus Christ had taken his seat at the right hand of God. That is, when I go away, I'm going to send the Spirit to you. How do you know you have the Spirit? How do you know I've sent the Spirit? How do you know that I arrived where I was supposed to go? So when Jesus ascended into heaven, when Jesus took his seat at the right hand of God, Jesus gave the Holy Spirit to the church and the the physical manifestation of that invisible spirit was seen in them speaking in tongues, languages that others could hear and understand. Now, that manifestation of the pouring out of the baptism of the Holy Spirit was not recognized. They didn't know what it was. In fact, what did they begin to do? They begin to attribute to these uh, apostles, right, that they were drunk, that they were, it's just in the middle of the morning and these men are drunk with wine, And therefore, they're stumbling and stammering around and stuttering, making fools of themselves, and they are nothing more than drunkards. And Peter stands up and begins doing what? Preaching the gospel. And when Peter stands up to preach the gospel, notice in verse 22, or verse 14 rather, 
Now, let's back up. He says there in verse 12, he says, and they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying they were full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his hand with the 11, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. And he just begins to do what? He begins to unfold to them these prophecies related to the pouring out of the Spirit, to Christ taking his place at the right hand of the Father, and the church being empowered through now the exaltation of Christ, now the church being empowered to live out their Christian witness and testimony. Without the preaching of the gospel, what benefit would that have been? That sign, that miracle, if you will, what benefit would that have been to those watching who did not have the word of God preached to them? Well, that's the question, and I think that is something that we have to wrestle with and answer because we need to know and understand, beloved, that the... the, that, the, the church, the, the, the kingdom of God, though it's been gifted with many graces, powerful graces, yet it's the primacy of preaching that is a main and chief grace for the edification, for the correction, for the training in righteousness, for the encouragement, for the exciting of our faith, hope, and love, for our, union, for our union, for our growing in grace and love and hope, and all of those other things that we need daily to get through the various challenges and struggles, whether it's our own flesh and heart, or whether it's others, or whether it's the world that we live in, all of the challenges that we face, it is the preaching of the gospel that is the food and, and nourishment of the kingdom of God. And that's why we should always be thankful, but also look forward to the preaching of the gospel. We should always want the preaching of the gospel. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. A Christian wants to hear the word of God read and preached. I've had the joy of listening to great preachers. And I, I hate to even say it this way, but I'm saying it to you as an effect because I think that men that open up the word of God faithfully are all great. But there are men that are more gifted than others in the preaching of the gospel. And you recognize that. But beloved, I have had some of the most most personal uh, interactions with the Lord through the preaching of the gospel by some of the most simplest preaching. So it's not the efficacy of the skill set of the minister itself. It's the opening up of faithfully the word of God and the spirit taking the simple truth of the word of God and making it effectual to what Paul called in uh, 1 Corinthians 1, the called of God. 
And of course, Paul criticizes, if you will, those who are superstitious and those who are intellectual. He criticizes them in the text. He says the Jews seek a sign. They're superstitious. They want a sign. They remember all the, 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 the scribes that went to Jesus looking for a sign. I think one of the interactions Jesus had is right there in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4 and 5. You know, they wanted a sign. And Jesus said, it's interesting how you can look at the weather and determine what's going to happen. You can look at the skyline and say, oh, we're going to get some rain today. Oh, we're going to get some snow today. Oh, it's going to be hot today. Oh, we're going to have a, we're going to have a cold front moving in. He says that, 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 that you are able to look at nature around you and discern some basic things, but you can't discern who stands in front of you. Meaning, you don't recognize me. Who has performed these miracles and have preached the gospel of the kingdom of God to you. You don't recognize me. And the reason, beloved, the natural man does not recognize Jesus is because he hates Jesus. The natural person, the natural man, the natural woman in their fallen condition hates God. It hates the revelation of God. It hates Jesus who is the supreme revelation of God. It hates the church that's a manifestation of God's grace. It hates God's children because they are in his likeness being renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit, having these graces benefited to them so that they may grow up in them. The world hates God. And it's in varying degrees. A lot of it is subtle. Some of it is very open. And obvious. So when we come to this text of scripture, we can see that Paul is setting forth the primacy of preaching by first saying that it's even greater than baptism. There's another passage of scripture. Let's just, let me point it out to you. Matthew 28, we've looked there a couple of times, but just again to demonstrate this point, this doctrine. Turn to Matthew 28. In Matthew 28, and you notice, of course, the Great Commission. And you can see in verse 19 that it's again taught that Preaching is greater than baptism. We know this because of the command that Jesus gave to the disciples. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. So that's the first commandment. That command is make disciples. How do you make disciples? How are disciples made? Well, hold your place there. Hold your finger there and go to Romans 10. Go to Romans 10. Now, I'm not going to read this whole, whole text, but the whole chapter would set into context what I'm certainly teaching you now. 
Look at verse 8. It says, but, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. From, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him, for who Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good tidings. I'm just going to stop there. So what's the point? How do you make disciples? You make disciples by recognizing that there are men called to preach the gospel. They are called of Christ, who is the head of the church, the mediator of the church, the prophet, priest, and king, that Christ is benefiting his people with men that are called to do what? Preach the gospel. These men are called and they are gifted by Christ to do that work. And they are recognized by the church that they are called out of. Turn to uh, 1 Timothy 3. So, uh, beloved, and um, this, is, this is not... A, a, a point that ought to be overlooked. I remember, I guess, just to give you, to illustrate why it's important. I, in the church that I pastored before this one, we would have regular visitors. And I say regular visitors, I'm not talking about from the community itself, but, but uh, hitchhikers, homeless people migrating from one place to another. Uh, for whatever reason, our uh, church building was along the route and they would show up. Sometimes I would get there first thing on Sunday morning, they would be sitting outside waiting for the doors to open and of course, looking for some form of handout or aid. And I would always say, you're more than welcome to stay for lunch, but you're going to have to stay for the preaching of the gospel. And I, I can tell you on several occasions, I, I don't necessarily believe this. I think they were telling me this because they thought it was impressive, but it was like, what are you doing? And, you know, I'd always kind of take them from the property to kind of the bus station or wherever they were going. And I was like, well, tell me what you're doing. Why are you out here walking around? Tell me your story, so to speak. And they were like, oh, I've been called to preach the gospel. And so I'm walking the, the, you know, the highways and byways preaching Christ. And I would say, well, tell me about Christ. And very little there. The point is, beloved, that when a man is called to the gospel ministry, there is an affirmation put on him that is 
that is, can, can be seen by the church. And you can see this in Paul giving these qualifications for the minister or for the elder per se. And he says in verse one of chapter three, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. That's important when you preach, right? You gotta have the skill set for it. Not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable and free from the love of money. And he must manage his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. And, and you can, what's the point here? The point is, is there is a divine call placed upon those who are to preach the gospel. And there is also a church call that goes along with the divine call to, to coincide with it and recognize the divine call. You might have heard some, some emotional preaching talking about. We don't need mama called preachers in the pulpit. And when I was kind of uh, growing up in the faith, when I was a new Christian, some of the churches that I visited, um, some of the more rural churches, it would be, you know, we don't need mama called preachers. We don't need daddy called preachers. We want God called preachers. And, I, and you see the point. We don't even need, so to speak, just because you like someone to preach the gospel. We need God ordained, called, and gifted preachers of the gospel that Christ is working in and through that he might exalt the gospel of the cross of Christ and grow everybody in unity with it. Well, not everybody that preaches is called of God to preach. And that's why we have, I think, we have such a contrast of what we see in the Bible and what we see out in the world about the church. Jeremiah chapter 14, the prophet condemns much of the preaching of that day, of the prophets. What was his condemnation? God hadn't called them. You have, you, you went, but I didn't send you. You went without my calling. You went without my, I'm not blessing this. I, I, I'm not sanctioning this. I'm not empowering this preaching. I didn't send you. Hey, listen, beloved, look, everybody look at me. God does not need me. Are you? He calls those whom he chooses to use. And he says, this is the one. I'm going to use him. I'm going to let him preach the gospel. He's going to be qualified to do so. You can't be disqualified. You can't be a, a hater. You can't be a lover of money. You can't be greedy. You can't be immoral. And the church sanction that. Because then we would say, you don't have God's call on your life. If God has called you, he's also sanctified you, he's equipped you, he has skillfully given you all that is needed to preach the gospel. Preaching is not simply a, an, acad, an academic work. It, is, it does have an 
intellectual element to it, of course. We are to have our minds changed, corrected, empowered, if you will, or encouraged, if you will. But yet preaching the gospel is not first and foremost some academic work. The preaching of the gospel is done, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, with power. What do you mean? With some efficacy. It's, it's a movement. It's an encouragement, beloved. The preaching of the gospel moves the people of God to conform to Christ. It's an encouragement. It's a great encouragement. And yes, you have to be taught truth. You have to be taught the doctrine. You have to know why we're doing these things. But yet the preaching of the gospel encourages you to stay the course. Run the race. Don't give up. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it may be difficult now more than it's ever been in your life. But stay the course because Christ is at the end of this race for you. Be encouraged. We go back to Matthew 28 and you can see that you've got the one who has sent, the one who's qualified, and yes, they're to make disciples. This is how you make disciples and, and you bring people into conformity with Christ as well conformity and submission to this truth. And then they're what? Baptized. They're baptized. Unless, as you are baptized as an adult, you bring your family with you. That God is not going to just be a, a, a God of salvation to the mom or to the dad, but to their children too. Beloved, the scriptures are clear. I don't know why we treat Christian homes different from any other home that we see. It's, I see it all the time. It's like, okay, the, the mom and dad are Christians, but all the children are not Christians. And, and Well, is it a Christian home or not? Who sets the rules? Who sets the tone? Who sets the environment? Who, who's the one that is, is responsible for the discipleship? of the home? Discipleship happens whether you like it or not. You can disciple your children when you get up in the morning and you open your device and you sit there in front of your children and you don't have any interaction with them and you just scroll, scroll, scroll. What's happening on Facebook? What's happening on Instagram? What's happening? On, I got to keep up with the world, man. I got to keep phone. I got to find out what's going on. You are discipling your children. When you sit around your home and you talk about the things that are important in life, if it's about money, the children are going to grow up and think the most important thing in life is money. If it's about education, they're going to think, well, the, the most important thing in life is education. And money is important. Hey, education is important. But along the way, you have to talk about the kingdom of God. You have to talk about what makes one wise, as Paul said. You've got to talk about what is true wisdom, what is true power of God, what is true conformity to the cross, what is, what is the true Christian discipleship. You have to talk about these things. And that's why in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses talked about these things. Whether you walk by the wayside, whether you go into one room into another in your house, whether you walk outside of your gates, 
post these, these the, the, the verses on your lamppost, on your gate, so that you're reminded that this house is the Lord's house. Wasn't that Joshua's message? As he was retiring from being the leader of Israel? Used of God to bring subjection to the Canaanites, to bring Israel into the land of Canaan. What does he do in his farewell speech, in his retirement speech? He says, listen, listen, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. This is the Lord's house. This is the Lord's room. These are the Lord's children. This is the Lord's marriage. This is the Lord's occupation. This is how the Lord's providing for us. Where do we learn these things? Well, we learn it not just, yes, through the word of God, but how does primarily that word communicate it to us? Through the reading, but especially the preaching of the gospel. God created us to be moved by preaching. God created us, beloved. I, I've heard, I've heard, I've been visited by unbelievers in, in the church, and you know we'd preach, and and they would make comments to, I cannot believe y'all would sit under this Sunday after Sunday. Now, maybe it's because I did such a bad job. It's possible. And, and, and it certainly could be. But the point they were making is I would never subject myself to such preaching. I would never subject myself to, to, such, to, to, to be conformed to the word and to Christ. I, no, they, they despised it. And they never came back. So, beloved, and part of highlighting the primacy of preaching, just again, all we have addressed is that, that initial um, verse 17 there in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1. Is that I'm, I'm going to notice, notice what Paul says. He says, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not in cleverness of speech. Uh, not in the way of this sophism of these philosophers of their day, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Paul, here's what Paul, Paul is not saying, listen, I came to you speaking like a child. That's not what he's saying. Paul is not saying, listen, I can't, I, I, I can't speak at all. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I came and preached to you in such a way that I took nothing away from Christ. I took nothing away from the glory and the power of the cross. I took nothing away. I added nothing, listen, I added nothing to myself. And that was the real guilt that the sophists and these philosophers were guilty of because they would practice their lectures and, and all of their skill sets of rhetoric, they practice it in a way to bring themselves glory. Look at me. 
Look how I use these words. Look how these words just roll off my tongue. Look how I put it all together so beautifully for you. That is the end result of their rhetoric is the applause of man. Paul said, I didn't do that. I was careful to preach in such a way that I did not make void the cross of Christ. That being said, beloved, in our standards, there's in the larger catechism, I'd encourage you to spend some time this week looking at what the larger catechism has to say about preaching. It talks about what preaching is. It talks about who should preach. And it talks about how preaching should be done. And then it goes and it talks about how it educates us on, well, how are we to listen to the preaching? And that's going to be the application this morning. How do we listen to this preaching, this primary grace? Well, it's question 160 of the larger catechism. I'm just going to open this catechism up and touch on the the, um, uh, commands that the Word of God gives us in relationship to the Word of God. It says, here's the question, what is required of those that hear the Word preached? Now, notice the emphasis. Certainly the one qualified and the one skilled has to be a workman, right? Has to be a workman, studied. One who, who seeks approval. Whose approval? God's approval in taking the Word of God and rightly dividing it, see, and making it useful, handling it accurately, so that the minister is not ashamed. But now notice, how are we to listen to the preached word? It says that it is required of those who hear the word of preach, number one, that they attend to the preaching of the word with diligence. Diligence. What does it mean to be diligent? Proverbs 8, 34. Blessed is the man that, excuse me, that hears me watching daily at my gates and waiting at my door. What's that, what's that proverb? Why did they use that proverb? What they're saying is that we ought to attend the word of God with diligence. I'm ready to hear it. I'm ready to be under it. I'm ready to have it preached to me. I want to hear it. I want, to be, I want to be diligent at it. I, want to, I, I, don't want to, I don't want to go to church and listen to preaching one Sunday, skip three Sundays, hit preaching again, skip six Sundays, hit preaching again, and then 10 years later of that habit and practice, we say, why am I not growing? Why am I, not, why am I still so angry? Why do I still struggle with so... Why, are these, why is this lust so strong in my life? Why... Diligence. You know, the number one genre of books being sold in America is self-help books. Self-help. That's the number one genre. Self-help. How to improve who you are. How to be a greater version of yourself. Is that not a ripoff of Christianity or what? I mean, talk about lack of creativity. I mean, you talk about, I mean, just being unable to come up with anything. That belongs to God and to God only. 
That's why God redeemed man right after the fall. That's why God put his spirit in his heart. That's why God changed him. That's why God gave him a revelation of who God is and what this world is about and who he is as a person. There is only true improvement in Christ. And all of this self-help, listen, brothers and sisters, I agree with there's so much of it. It's just a rip-off. It's a rip-off of Christianity. talking about habits. I'm going to say this. I've been wanting to say it for a while. You know, I do laugh at these, um, these internet philosophers. And I mean, very popular, you know, academics. Who, who write these books that sell millions of copies. And, and you know, it, it, here's the principle. Here's one of the principles. Hey, clean your room. I'm like, uh, profound. We're talking about character and habits. We're talking about things that are of integrity. Again, sir, you lack creativity and you're ripping off the gospel. Let's just be, you know, frank about it. You're ripping off the gospel. But even the world knows you've got to change your habits if you want to change yourself, right? Now, that doesn't mean you're going to heaven if you clean your room. But I tell you what, it's a great sign. <laughs> What's the old saying? Cleanliness is next to godliness. I used to laugh at my wife. She was so in training our children, she would take their hands and pick the toy up and walk it over and put it in the toy box as they cried like this. You know, eh, eh, you know you're going to move the whole room this way. And what are we doing? We're training people here. Diligence. Secondly, preparation. We ought to prepare ourselves to come under the teaching of the word of God. First Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Wherefore, laying aside all malice, all guile, all hypocrisies and envies and all evil speaking and as newborn babes desire to see the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. Meaning that as we go to come into the, to the presence of the Lord under the preaching of the gospel and the kingdom and the cross of Christ, we say, you know what? I've been angry this week. I gotta set that aside. You know what? I, 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 need, to prepare, I need to legitimately clean my heart out and get ready to have it filled up with God's word. And what a picture as a newborn babe desires his mother's milk. With prayer, with prayer recognizing that it's a divine work, that it's God working also in us and that we would prepare ourselves with prayer. Lord, I mean, listen, here's how I want you to pray. Lord, help this, this, this man preach the truth. Will you help him, Lord? Give him some organization. Lord, give him, Lord, the words to say. Don't, Lord, help this man preach what I need to hear. That's how you pray for me. Say, Lord, take the word of God and use it powerfully in my life. We need to pray. Psalm 119, verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Lord, help me to see it. Why? Because, again, I know, hey, you are, guys, we're all real smart. If you don't believe us, just ask us. We're all real smart. But it's God that opens the mind. It's God that opens the eyes. It's God that opens the ears, even of the believer. 
to, to receive, to understand, and to accept and rest in the cross of Christ. Number four, that we would examine what we hear with the scriptures. Acts 17, verse 11. I know many of you know this passage of scripture talking about the, the Thessalonians. He says, they were, they were, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, these Bereans, that in they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. They just didn't naively and gullibly receive everything that was taught to them. They took the apostle Paul and they examined Paul's teaching with the word of God. Now you say with the word of God, how did they do that? They have Bibles, they had the Old Testament. It's a great text of scripture to demonstrate how the New Testament revelation, the preaching of the gospel does not contradict, conflict, or in any way distort the Old Testament. No, the Old Testament confirms it, confirms it. And they took the Old Testament and they examined Paul's teaching with it. And they said, this man's teaching us the truth and we receive it. To receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind. Why? Because it's the word of God. Not because it's Presbyterian church you're sitting in. Not because you like Pastor Stanfield. You receive it with love, faith, uh, meekness and readiness of mind because it's the word of God. Hebrews chapter four, verse two, for unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, talking about those in the desert that perished, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. That is, they heard Moses preach the gospel and others. It didn't save them. Why? Because they didn't come to the preaching of the gospel with faith to believe. I know because I believe. I understand because I believe. Brothers and sisters, we are to come with faith and accept it as the word of God. James chapter one, verse 21, the latter, past, the latter part of that verse, it says, receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Number six, meditate. Meditate is a preparation, if you will, that we would not just prepare ourselves to come to, but also meditate on what we hear. Meditate and confer on it. What does it mean to confer? Talk about it. Hide it in your heart. Bring forth the fruit of it in your lives. Meditate, confer, and bring forth the fruit of it. Psalm 119, verse 11, you know this one. Thy word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. James 1, verse 25, but whoso looks unto the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in all he does. Aim to put what you know into practice. Beloved, it is of little use to you to come and sit under the preaching of the gospel without preparing yourselves. 
without prayerfully seeking God's favor and blessing, without confessing your sins, putting off your guilt, putting off your your anger, your lust, seeking the truth of it from the word of God, comparing it, what you hear, what you, it's that precious to you. All the error that is going around in our world today, it's like the Lord has turned the light off. It's hard to imagine anything but because we've become such lethargic and so complacent with truth. Even the truth of his, the creation. I mean, we again, I go back to this homosexuality. You go back, I mean, you're talking about the very, very baseline of rebellion against God. I know you made me a man, but I'm not going to be a man, God. I'm going to be a woman. And I'm not going to be a woman. I'm going to be a man. Turn the light off. And it's like dead churches because we have forgot to have a passion and love for the truth of God's word preached. This is the salvation of the world. No politician, no group of politicians, no reformation of the judicial system is going to perform what the preaching of the gospel will perform in due time with God's power and God's blessing when he turns that light on. And that's what Paul does in in Corinthians as he goes down through there. And we're going to begin to look at it. This power of God that Paul is saying, look, it's demonstrated in the the power of God and how? In your changed life. You are exhibiting the very power of God, the effectual preaching of the cross. You are an exhibition of it when you go out and live your life. And all of this hatred against the freedom, the First Amendment, the freedom of speech and all, in my opinion, that's just another way of getting to the churches. It's just another way of shutting down the churches from preaching the truth. That's the ultimate goal. And we exalt atheism. We exalt agnosticism. We, we exalt false religion. And we, anything but the true religion of the gospel of Christ. Because the world, as Paul says, is at war with the foolishness of God. And Paul says the foolishness of God is greater than the best of intellect of man. Examine yourselves, beloved, in light of this. What does God want you to do? And do business with God. Let's pray. And Father, thank you for this opportunity to consider power of the gospel, the, the, the primacy of preaching, the method, the vehicle by which this truth comes to our ears and our spiritual eyes. Lord, I pray that we would realign ourselves with it this morning, 
that we would take to heart what we've heard. And Lord, we would repent of whatever we need to repent of. And Lord, we would grow in grace and that we would continue to unite ourselves with and to and through Christ with our brothers and sisters. And so Lord, we pray that you would take this preached word and use it for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.